Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Ben Gutman. Ben is the author of Simply Put. He's a professor at Baruch University in New York. He's a former marketing exec who ran his own agency. And today, we're going to be talking about communication and why it's imperative to communicate simply. His book subheadline is Why Clear Messages Win and How to Design Them. So we're going to pick apart one of my terrible messages, and Ben's going to uh, then teach me how to um, meet five simple rules and for guiding my copy and the design of that copy. And we're going to look at communication more broadly, the importance of it, what goes wrong when you do it poorly, and what the implications are of good, clear communication throughout your organization, because ambiguity at the top leads to politics at the bottom. So let's get stuck in. Ben, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Marcus. Excited to be here. My pleasure. Would you mind giving us a couple of minutes on your history, please, so people understand your background and how you got to this point? Absolutely. So I, you know, you mentioned Baruch College before, so I teach there now, but I went there when I was an undergraduate. And when I was a student, I was kind of a big nerd. I was doing student government, kind of, you know, really enjoying everything about being on campus. But uh, I didn't pay that much attention about, you know, what I wanted to do afterwards. And luckily, I had a marketing professor who, so I was a marketing major, um, I had a marketing professor who said, I know you kind of, you know, maybe want to start a business, you know, start your own agency, we need some help with digital, maybe we can figure something out. And this guy was an adjunct at a random agency up in Westchester, which is just outside of New York City. And I grabbed a friend, we hopped on the train, we set up shop in his basement, we slapped our logo on the wall, we worked on some small business stuff. We worked on some stuff with them. Honestly, we were too stupid and young to really work on like the big projects that they had. But we went from working on the local ice cream shop, the local camera shop to 10 years later, having an office in New York City, having a team that was you know really just wonderful to work with, working with the NFL and Comcast and I Love New York and all sorts of really awesome clients. And it was just kind of this incredible journey. And then I decided about a year and a half ago that it was time to sell it. And it was time to kind of, you know, do something else. It was a great timing. I mean, it was, it, it, we there was no gun to our head. It's just that it's one of those things where if you do it at the beginning of your career for a decade or so, eventually you say, you know, you kind of want to maybe do something else. And so since then, I've been doing a bunch of great kind of independent consulting and working with different different companies and advisor and CMO capacity. But I've also been really enjoying the kind of teaching and learning component that I had when I was in school. And now I get to have as a professor, I get to teach undergraduate marketing. And uh, I have like a thousand students who I've had over the years. It's really wonderful and incredible to have that. And all of these experiences led me, they kind of, you know, all push in the same direction, which is how do you get people to do things? How do you inform? How do you persuade? How do you communicate in a way that's effective? That's what people, that's what I do have to do in class. That's what clients would hire us to do. And ultimately I started to investigate that and it started to turn into a book. And that's how we got to simply put, which I began writing about a year and a half ago. And I'm really excited to share it today. Excellent. Well, I'm very excited to read it. Tell me this. Marketing in the 1950s really hit a heyday. And there was a real focus on the customer, on the psychology. They had in-house psychologists, you know, madmen, all of that sort of stuff. 
And marketing today has largely become an exercise in just pissing people off at scale. Where did we go wrong? And what do we have to do to get back on track? Because marketing should be the most powerful lever you have in your Mm -hmm. business. And instead, it's just become this noise machine. Oh, absolutely. So it's funny you mentioned that because part of the reason why I wrote this book right now is that marketing is in this period of huge, huge change, especially digital marketing. That's the type of agency that I ran. We did digital marketing for, we bought and sold, you know, all sorts of different ads and they really annoyed probably a lot of people, right? Because most digital ads that you've seen in your life are some form of targeted, tracked, pennies on the dollar advertising that are just really aimed at kind of like beating beating you over the head with the same message over and over and over again until you succumb to it and go click that buy button. And a lot of these are because of this tool called retargeting or remarketing messaging. Yeah. If I go want to go buy hiking boots, I go to the store to go check out hiking boots. I leave that. And then for the next two weeks, hiking boots are going to follow me around the internet, right? After you bought them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so the way that works is this little piece of technology called a cookie, which I won't get into the kind of details of that, but basically it's this little file that kind of tracks you around the internet. And that powered everything. That powers all of the retargeting, the remarketing, the highly focused advertising, but the cookie's dying. Every major platform for browsers, for phones, for operating systems is pushing back against the cookie and saying, hey, we're not going to use this anymore. And on the on one day in last year when Facebook announced kind of the first results of these cookie bans because they're a big advertising company, their stock went down by 20%. So it's a big, big moment here in terms of like advertising is changing a lot. And so you mentioned, funny you mentioned like the 50s and 60s, because if you look at that like Don Draper heyday of marketing, the, you know, David Ogilvy stuff, a lot of it was simpler. I mean, a lot of it was saying, hey, you know what, all we got to do is we got to fill stuff on TV, we got to fill stuff on radio on magazines and newspapers. And we don't have all this data. We don't have the ability to kind of knock people over the head a thousand times. So we have to be more persuasive. So we have to be better at selling things. And I think that's the harder part to do in marketing. And that's ultimately what I think is going to be more important again, as we kind of enter this new era where we can't just rely on the brute force tools anymore. I think the big challenge that we've got is that Dan Kennedy said it best. You know, the price of free marketing is all the people who will never do business with you. (laughs) And, you know, the number of companies I put onto a blacklist just because they keep spamming me about shit I don't care about or want. And there's no effort to uh, try and engage with you as a human being. So, you know, it's automated. I've got no intention of parting with money for some clown that thinks that that's a good approach, especially when they want a lot of money, which generally people are after me for. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think we've got to rethink what marketing's function is and all of the functions within marketing, which I would include sales and customer success and product, um, they all need to be aligned around the customer. Mm -hmm. But the customer has become a forgotten afterthought at the end of a long chain of a huge amount of abuse. The employees, to a large extent, who are responsible for dealing with the customer are treated not brilliantly and as a utility and then cast aside as soon as uh, the valuation number doesn't look right. So you've got huge turnover and lack of relationship. So your marketing 
given how bad your selling is, really needs to be a hell of a lot better than it is. Mm. And at the moment, the conversion rates are pitiful. 3% click-through rate with a 15% conversion rate, which most agencies would be pretty happy with, represents a 99.9955% failure rate to generate revenue. Now, most of these companies that are spending money on digital advertising are trying to generate customers. So it's failing at scale. And now they've got AI, they're ramping up the EDC and amplifying it. What's the remedy? Because yeah. you talked about it's difficult. You know, you've got to put some thought into it. I, I think that the, the answer lies there, but I'm curious at your response mm -hmm. and what we have to do to get people to actually put the effort in. So a couple of things. The first one is it's funny you mentioned the kind of click-through rates uh, of different things, right? So you're talking about it's infinitesimally small, right? Like nobody clicks on, on ads. We don't actually see ads. Like we, we if you look at eye-tracking studies, and I mentioned a couple of these in the book. Uh, if you mentioned, if you look at eye tracking studies, we literally don't even see them. We, our eyes jump over them. We are so adept at doing this we, that researchers call it banner blindness. And we've been doing it. It's not a new thing. We've been doing it for like 25 years since they started first doing the stuff back in the first looking at this phenomenon in the 90s. We realize immediately that this is something that's not interesting to us and not relevant to us. And we kind of go past it. Um, and if you look, and I show in, in my class, when, when, I, when I teach like the history of digital marketing to my students, I show them the first ever banner ad. And do, do, you, do you know, are you familiar with this ad at all? So uh, it was from AT&T. They had a campaign called You Will. And if you want to see something eerily prescient, go on YouTube and search AT&T You Will. They had a series of commercials back in the mid-90s that were, I think, I forget if it was like Morgan Freeman or Tim Rob. There's some, some great narrator for it. and they predict all sorts of different things. They're like, you know, have you ever, you know, made a video call to, you know, across an ocean to put your kid to bed? Or have you ever taken a class from somebody, you know, 500 miles away, whatever it is. And it says you will at the end. That's an aside. I would go check it out. It's like they predicted the future. They couldn't win the future necessarily. They, <laughs> they kind of estimated the, where like the carrier falls in, in terms of the, the hierarchy. But the banner ad was part of that. And so the banner ad was a very simple ad in a newsletter that said, have you ever clicked in this corner? And it's an arrow and it points to the corner and said, you will. And that ad is, you know, that's kind of like the starting gun for digital marketing. It had like 48% click through rate, right? Like it, it was like bananas in terms of how successful it is. You'll never achieve that in your entire life, in your entire career as a marketer. But you know why that is successful? It goes back to one of the things I also talked about in the book, which is the idea of salience. It's something different. So, so it's like what rises to your attention and, and it's largely driven by contrast is what you're doing Absolutely. different than what the rest of the, the noise is doing. And so that ad was different, but now that was 30 years ago and the ads aren't different anymore, right? They're all the same. They're all, and we, we kind of just have, we kind of just skim right past them. That's the first piece. But yeah, if you want to chat about that, let's do that. No, 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 go, go, go on, go on. Cause um, you I was going to say the question, but um, there's more, so I'm going to shut up. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, and then the, but the second piece was just, you know, you talk about, does it matter to me? I, I, all these things kind of hit me. And I think that that's also goes back to the other principle of like beneficial in the book, which is, what does it matter? It, what does it mean to me? How does it make my life better that I received this message? And I think a lot of folks do that. Uh, you know, a lot of folks in marketing kind of go past that. They're thinking of themselves or thinking of like, what's the day to day of like, I got to go, you know, get approval from my boss and do this and that. But the 
one sentence, if you just internalize it in marketing, that makes everything else a lot easier, which is this from Theodore Levitt, who is a uh, marketing professor in the 2000, in the nine, in the 1900s um, from Harvard, who said, people don't want to buy a quarter inch drill, they want a quarter inch hole, right? And if you just think about like, what is the, they don't care about the thing you're selling. Every ad you've ever heard has been against your will, but they have a need and they have a desire and you know they want to solve that problem and your your product might just so happen to do that so you're trying to really selling that solution more than you're selling the the thing that you're packaged up in your widget well you're talking about timeliness relevance and direct personal value and you're also talking about entering into the narrative or the moment the context that your customer is in or is having and therein lies the rub because i think very few sellers think as their customer. They think about what they can do to the customer, but they don't think as the customer. So there's no real empathy there. And yeah. I know empathy is one of the um, filters. So why don't we introduce the filters? You, you've got five. Let's talk about those. Absolutely. So uh, the way I define a simple message, it's something that is easily perceived, understood, and acted upon. That's kind of the definition that drives everything. And I look at this whole idea through design. And you mentioned the subtitle before, which is saying why clear messages win and how to design them. And the my background, my functional background is in design. And designers basically arrange things in the world to solve a problem. That's what we do. And the or to achieve a goal. And so you deal with constraints, you deal with users, you deal with needs. And when we look at through that lens at messaging, we can identify five principles that are present in the strongest, simplest messages. And so they are beneficial. What does it matter to the receiver? What's in it for me? Focused. Are you trying to say one thing? Are you trying to say multiple things at once? Is this one idea or is this three ideas in a trench coat? Salient, which is does your message stand out from the noise? Does it rise to attention? Is it contrasting enough? Is it noticeable? Empathetic. Are you speaking in a language that the audience understands? And are, do you have their kind of needs at heart? And then minimal, which is have you cut out everything that isn't important? And minimal is at the end on purpose because it's about having everything you need, but only what you need to have a strong message. Okay, so with that, let's tear apart my message. So it's tiny piece of copy for a Calendly note when people are booking a 15-minute breakthrough session with me where they bring me their gnarliest, shittiest, most difficult, impossible problem. And then I'll coach them for 15 minutes and at the end of it, come up with one question to help them unlock that problem. And it reads, what's currently impossible for you, which if achieved, would be an absolute game changer. Unlock your impossible in sales. Marcus delivers the key, the one question, 15 minutes, game changed. So that's the copy. Mm -hmm. So applying the filters and generally improving it, what would you suggest that we do so that people can see the process at work? Got it. So, uh, I mean, right off the bat, you're in pretty good shape. I also want to be clear, simply put, is not a copywriting manual, right? This is not about like use this word, not don't use this word. It is kind of about the principles behind how do you how do you kind of put your head in the right space to create effective messaging. In so whatever. it's the sheet music. Yeah. So 
But if we wanted to look at this one and look at it through the five here, right? So I think right off the bat, if you're looking at that first line you have, which is what's currently impossible for you, which if achieved will be an absolute game changer. It's pretty, pretty good. It's beneficial. You are you are talking to the recipient about what they give a shit about. You're saying, hey, you know what? Like, what what is the thing that really is kind of stuck in your craw there, and you really and you can't get past it? I think that you're also very focused there too, which is you're saying it's it's the one thing, right? What is the one thing that would be an absolute game changer? And you say that again in that third line too, which is Marcus delivers the answer. The one question, fifteen minutes, game changed. Um, I think that there is a little bit of a struggle with kind of some of the minimal components. And when I talk about minimal, it doesn't mean that it's the fewest number of words, the fewest number of slides, fewest number of paragraphs. It means that it has the least amount of friction. And this is a kind of a user experience mindset on it, which is what's the user experience of this message? Is there anything on here that is kind of like a stop? That's an off ramp that tells somebody that, hey, you know, I'm not paying attention to this. This doesn't make any sense. I'm going to go, I'm going to go attend to the other thousand little beeping and buzzing things in my life. That's what we're looking at in terms of minimal. I think that when you look at that second line, which says unlock your impossible in sales, it's a little bit of a repetition, maybe, of the first line. I think that you could probably frame something here that you can probably blend this into that last piece there, which is Marcus delivers the key, which is you know, in one question, 15 minutes game change, maybe you say something along the lines of in 15 minutes, I'll help you solve it. It's pretty direct. It's pretty, it's pretty straightforward. And it's also going back to kind of that empathetic component, which is what is the language that they're using internally before they kind of put it on the, you know, all the dress of talking externally and talking in press releases and marketing terms. What is the language that you're using? I think impossible is a good word. I think you have that already in there, but if they're like, hey, I'll help you solve that problem in 15 minutes. That ends up being a really empathetic way of framing that piece. Okay, excellent. When one is trying to build a message, let's talk through the process from the absolute basics. Because when I'm building a message, I start with the job to be done by the message. I'm trying to work backwards from that. But like I said, I, this isn't my forte. And uh, so I can go down lots of rabbit holes and overcomplicate. If we were to build a framework, a structure to help people at least get started whilst we're waiting for the book to be re- released over here, then what would that structure look like? And where do we? what's the starting point? How do we get off the starting blocks? Got it. And so I, I would... I would generally go in this direction. I would go through the benefit. I would go for the order which we have them laid out. The first one is really important, which is what do you, you you, you mentioned it. What do you want to achieve of this message? What do you want changed in the world as part of this message? And who are you talking to as part of that? If you put on another kind of like marketing skill before you even, if if those struggle, if those are hard to answer, you have to kind of go before the messaging and go for your own kind of internal positioning state uh, process. So brand position Uh is, is another whole universe of marketing, of branding, of communications, which is identifying like, where are you literally positioned in somebody's brain? I mean, what, who are you selling to? What do they need? And why are you the best at filling that need? That is usually captured in a positioning statement, which is kind of like an internal document, an internal guide. And once you have that, 
I mean, in my experience, I've we've worked with dozens of clients over the years to put those type of you know like foundational pieces in place. Once they have that, everything else gets a lot easier. But if you never sat down and answered the questions like who are we selling to, what do they need, and why are we better than everybody else at filling that need, then every individual person in your organization is going to be making those answers up themselves and they're going to have different answers and they're going to manifest that in different messages. And when you put everything together, it's, you know, yeah, you can put some bubble gum and duct tape on it so that it looks like it's cohesive, but it's not actually going to, you're actually going to be saying the same thing. This is part of the challenge, I think, that there is too little, if any, coordination across departments. And so what we end up creating is one person's success then leads to someone else or several other people paying the price downstream. So marketing being successful with a 3% click-through and a 15% conversion rate means that the 85% that weren't converted get thrown over the fence to sales. Hmm. They then have to follow up 6 to 11 times and that means they're generally over, uh, overworked, overstretched, and not getting the coverage. And so they're desperate at the end of the month. Uh, month. So they then sell to anyone. They missell. They discount. And then they chuck these unhappy or soon-to-be unhappy customers over the fence to CS, who then picks up a bunch of tickets that they should never have had because they shouldn't have been sold to in the first place. And they become a churn risk. And then that affects the balance sheet. So marketing success means all these other ripple effects throughout the organization. I see this constantly. And so to bring it back to communication, ambiguity at the top leads to politics and confusion at the bottom. As soon as you go one or two layers deep and the message starts to get diluted and interpreted, everyone is starting to work at odds with one another Mm -hmm. and they're all thinking they're doing a good job. But the people who suffer at the end of it are the customers, and interestingly enough, the shareholders, because they're leaving behind probably 80% of the money that they could be generating. Absolutely. Are you familiar with Bruce Springsteen? I've heard of him, yeah. <laughs> so uh, one, one of my favorite artists, you know, I just saw him on concert a few, a few like a week ago. Um, his nickname is The Boss, right? He's been in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He's, he's had albums on top of the chart 50 years, sold out millions and millions of seats in concert venues. And part of his success, I mean, before he had, he was Bruce Springsteen. He was in a band called The Castiles. And, you know, they were okay. They, you know, had a little bit of a single they cut, but they were chaotic. They couldn't agree on anything. They were butting heads. They were getting arrested. They, it, was, it was a mess. And so he goes out, he does some solo stuff. And then eventually he starts to form what event, you know, they start to call like the heart stopping earthquaking, you know, E Street band. And if you look at Bruce Springsteen, it's it's not the E Street band, it's Bruce Springsteen and the E Street band. It's it's his band. It's yeah. not kind of all equals there. Ultimately, it's his responsibility, it's his name and lights, it's his, and he's the boss for it. And he has a great line in his, when people ask him about that history, it's in his memoir, where he says, democracy doesn't work in rock bands. And you aren't able to always have kind of a complete consensus and egalitarian take on thing. You have to have a fair process for developing and being creative and working with others. But you really, the most important thing is you have to have leadership and you have to have authority to be able to say, okay, this is the idea, this is not the idea. You know, I'm going to crawl, I'm going to circle this one, X out this one, and we're going to go with this. Otherwise, you end up with something that's unfocused. And 
the best example of kind of unfocused or the analogy I like to use is I'll talk about like my students. And every semester I give them a midterm assignment where I say, here's a brand, go make a pitch for this brand. They're in groups and these groups are inherently flat, right? They don't have that kind of leadership and creative direction. And what they come back with, I give them this warning every time. They come back with what I call the Frankenstein idea. And so the Frankenstein idea, if you read Mary Shelley's book, how she describes the monster is he's got beautiful black hair. He's got strong limbs. He's got lustrous eyes. All of the individual pieces of the monster are beautiful, attractive features. But when you put them together, it forms this kind of gruesome composite because it's not... Yeah, exactly. It, and that is a lot like what I see happen with my students. I see it happen with, with other professionals all the time, which is when you get into those kind of messy organ, messy relationships, somebody says, oh, we're going to use drones. Oh, we're going to use NFTs. Oh, we're going to use AI. And everybody just kind of, you know, throws three hashtags on the whiteboard and they take it all together. They wrap some tape around it and they say, here's the idea. Go out and do it. And it doesn't matter how much electricity you zap through those messages, those ideas. They're not going to they're not going to come to life. Communication is at the heart of our success as a species, and we seem to be losing our ability to communicate with clarity and persuasion. It seems to have been traded for volume. I'm really interested in the process that you go through in terms of formulating a message. Just the very basics, the building blocks, the components of how to do that in a way that then sets you up to produce good messaging. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I mentioned before kind of the positioning piece of it. You have to understand a lot of that at first before you can really understand what you want to do. Um, And then the other mindset to put yourself in the right position before you get into these five principles is that it's your responsibility as the sender. I break it down into all the different types of communication that we do. It's that I call them all messages and the people who send the messages, senders that receive the message recipients, a sender can be an advertiser, an advocate, a teacher, a faith leader, a parent, whatever it is. And a recipient can be, you know, the voter, a buyer, a donor, whatever it is. And just like when you're sending a letter and the sender has to pay for the postage, it's the responsibility of the sender in any sort of communication to bear the literal and metaphorical cost of that communication. You have to do the work to make it so that the recipient ends up hearing it, ends up um, uh, ends up internalizing it, ends up being useful to them. Because the truth is, I mean, the average American spends 13 hours a day for some form of media. And that's a lot of messages you're hearing, right? I'm waking up every single day and I'm, you know, I'm barraged by, you know, push notifications and emails and tweets and whatever it's going to be. For you to break through, you really have to kind of connect to something I care about. You have to be something that's noticeable. You have to be focused and you have to be empathetic and minimal. And all those things come as part of that. And we care about a lot of things in our lives, right? We care about our our family. We care about our favorite sports team. We care about our, our work and our community. But we don't care about your product by default. We have to identify why I care about that to begin with. Um, and so you have to look at your audience figure out what it is they really need, what it is they want, how you can make their life better, and then go through the process. Saying, okay, well, let's lay something out. Let's, let's, let's put our first draft on paper and let's go and say, okay, how can we, how is this beneficial? How is this something that's helping them? How can we focus? Are we making sure we're saying only one thing in that process? How can we be salient? How can we kind of, and, and within each one of these, I have all sorts of tools too. The main framework I use 
um, to help people get salient is by embracing constraints, by by embracing limitations on your time, on your tools, on your uh, on your space. All of these things help kind of push you into doing different things that get noticeable. And then you know, empathetic and minimal. And at the end of it, the minimal piece is have you cut out everything that is an off ramp, that is a way for somebody to kind of take that excuse for for not connecting. Very interesting. I, I want to dig deeper into the embrace the constraints because I teach my clients that constraints are catalysts. You can't change the fact that that constraint exists. I can't change the global economy. I can't change whether World War Three breaks out on my doorstep. But what I can do is choose how I respond to it and prepare for that. And for those of you who've been listening a while, you know that I'm a bit of a curmudgeon. My take on the way things are turning is the next two year, two to three years absolute shitstorm okay mm-hmm. we've got elections on this side of the pond and over in the us the bad actors are going to be playing their cards as much as possible there's going to be social mm-hmm. unrest we've got world war 3 on our doorstep we've got the cost of living crisis inflation interest rate rises uh, we've just come out of the pandemic and we're going into a period of greater uncertainty and economic trouble odds are people will become meaner they will become more selfish and more self-absorbed. And you need to factor in the reality that you have to sell to the customers that you sell to by meeting them where they are or meeting Mm -hmm. them where they're going to be, not where you wish they were. So let's talk about the hard work because those constraints, most people just give up and throw up their hands. Talk to me about why you see constraints as catalysts and why you say embrace them. Oh, yeah. Constraints are great. I mean, it's if you look at, you know, anybody who's been a writer, who's been a designer, who's been a painter, who's been whatever, if there's this kind of crushing weight of that empty canvas a lot of times, everything being possible means that it's the opportunity cost. Everything you're doing all of a sudden means something that you're not doing. I tell a story in the book about uh, Dr. Seuss. And if you look at, the early works of of children's literature in the kind of the middle of the century they were boring they it was like fun of dick and jane and it was all these like really kind of white bread early primary readers and life magazine life magazine published a report and they said that child literacy was slipping and so the publisher of of, of Houghton mifflin comes to dr seuss and says i want to challenge you to bring back a book that children can't put down I'm going to give you a list of 250 words. They're going to come up with it together. And we're going to say, can you use a book that teaches people these 200, you know, these words? And with only these words. And so Dr. Seuss goes back and he labors for for nine months. And he comes up with a book which uses 236 words, only 236 words for the whole book. And it's the cat in the hat. And it's the best-selling book he's had to date, right? And it's this iconic character, iconic story. Uh, that still has sold like 20 million copies of this book, right? And a little bit later, his editor issues him a challenge, gives him a bet, says, I bet you can't write a book with 50 words, only 50 words in it. And so what does he do? <laughs> he gets to work. He says, here's my palette. I have these 50 words. What can I do? And he writes the best-selling book he ever had, which is Green Eggs and Ham, which came in exactly at 50 words. And there's only 50 different words in Green Eggs and Ham. And it has been on the top of everybody's list from teachers, students, parents, whatever it is for decades and decades now. So it was a bad bet. He, he lost He lost the $50. How many dollars per word do you reckon he made? Yeah, that's, but yeah, I think it worked out pretty well in the end, right? And so 
it, it's a good example of most of the time, if I, if I gave you and I said, you can only use 50 words to write a book, you're like, that's crazy. I can't do that. You would think of that in, in, you know, that's our first reaction to it. But then when we use that as the palette that we have of the toolbox that we have, all of a sudden, it actually helps our thinking and helps our creativity because it eliminates all these other possible options. It says, okay, you know what? This is where we're going to, it helps us focus in on, on where our goal is. The research backs us up too. So there's there's some studies that I um, that I came across where these researchers look at the relationship between pressure, time pressure in particular, and the quality and the quantity of creative, creative ideas being generated. And they found that it kind of follows this like, little bit of a normal distribution, actually. So when you have low time pressure, when you say, hey, here's a here's a project I want you to do, the deadline, it's in a year. Don't worry about it. I need you to I need to write a blog post for next year. We say, okay, that's great. I'll that's a problem for future me though. I'm gonna hand, you know, that some, you know, Ben, you know, Ben today, I don't want to do that. Ben in six months, maybe he'll do it. I kind of put it aside. And so you end up with actually kind of that no, none of that push behind you to to generate quality or quantity of ideas. And at the other end of the spectrum, when it's really high time pressure, which is saying, hey, I have a, you have a presentation tomorrow. I need you to give an hour long keynote. Well, that's not enough time for you to go and say, I'm going to go through this whole new thing. It's, I'm, this is like, I'm going to just copy and paste. I'm going to use things I've done before. I'm going to take the easy path and hopefully I'll survive that, that deadline. And so at either end of the spectrum, we end up having pretty low quality and quantity of creative output. But in the middle of the spectrum, where there's a little bit of a push, but there's still enough room to breathe, that's where we end up doing our best work. That applies to design, to writing, to engineering, all these things. It helps to have a little bit of a push, but not be suffocated. Mihai Csikszent Mihai in his research on flow says that we should stretch, have a stretch goal that's about 7% greater than where we believe we can grasp. And our reach normally outreaches our grasp if we're pushed and we go into that flow state. So a little bit of pressure is good. Too much pressure tends to shut our clever bits of our brain down, particularly language, reason, and logic. So help me understand this then. As a leader, I have to try and get my people to all arrive at the same point. What can leaders do to dramatically improve their communication? And what cadence of communications should they be adopting in order to ensure that there is that consistency, there's that reliability, there's that frequency of touch? Because sporadic communication is almost, if not as bad, as clumsy communication. That reminded me of something that's a little bit a field, which is kind of the what's it called, kind of irregular stimuli, right? So if you look at these studies, people do of like the rats and they push the little thing down and they get a shock or they get this stuff. It's predictable whenever I do something and I get a response, you know, people act normally, people don't, you know, they, they, they the little rats, they go get the water they need and they get out of there, like the snack they need. But when it's this irregular response, what ends up happening is, it adds to our stress. It adds to our addiction. This is how like slot machines work. This is how social media works. Is that when we're when we have this type of unpredictable response, it ends up being just you know we we get addicted to it because 
it, it ends up kind of frying our brains a little bit of, of saying, well, I, I need to get that stimuli. I need to get the response. And that ends up being really tough for anybody. So we talk about sporadic communications is we don't want to end up in that situation for sure. I would say if you're looking for one of the best for how to kind of guide internal communications, there's two pieces there that I think are relevant. Number one is going back to Bruce Springsteen. There's a, there's a, a quote he, a, a phrase he uses at the beginning of some of his concerts or some of his live performances where he says, uh, nobody wins unless everybody wins. Uh, and if you've ever done any sort of internal selling and, you know, or external selling as well, you understand that there's really two goals a lot of time. Number one is you have the stated project goal, which is I want to go increase revenue by 10%. But really, the people who are making that decision, who are the client that's going to choose your proposal or the boss that's going to approve whatever, they want something else. They also want to look good for their boss. They want to look good for their, you know, for the the shareholders. They maybe really hate the guts of some rival executive somewhere and they want their team to do well. And so if you can identify what that kind of like a little bit of a political play is, you can identify what that motivation is and help them win in that way. That will ultimately help sell your ideas through a lot more effectively. Well, uh, yesterday we were doing a training session in my uh, classes on how to create an internal sponsor to champion you and do the selling for you internally. And what fascinated me about the exercise was no one had really given that much thought to the whole process. And, you know, communications that people are always talking behind your back. They're just not necessarily saying what you want them to. And when we're selling, when we're marketing, most of the communication that happens about us happens without us because buyers only engage with vendors 17% of the Mm -hmm. buying cycle. Now, that buying journey might be five years long. And that's spread across all the vendors. Now, most of the vendors turn up when they're in the active looking about to decide stage, because that's what they're all looking for, because that allows them to do some rapid bank qualification and take an order. But that's about a 3% win rate. So 97% of your effort is wasted. I see organizations, for some reason, driving the same behavior that worked in a previous era, in a previous context, but the context has changed and their communication doesn't. And so there's always this lag. There seems to be you know, a lot of generals preparing to fight the last war. And we're seeing that with AI. We saw it with digital advertising. It uh, We saw it with the facts. And wherever you look, human beings have a tendency to be very, very cautious and then overcompensate. As we're going into this time of great uncertainty, what do we have to do as sellers, as leaders, as managers in terms of embracing a cadence of communication so that we're creating relationships and we're not just showing up to try and dip our hand in their pockets? Mm -hmm. First of all, it's probably, it's impossible to over-communicate a lot of times. You don't want to create too much noise and you don't want to drown out the salient, the important parts of what you're doing. People are really good at underestimating how much people don't care. <laughs> people are busy that they have other things that matter to them. People think that, you know, I, I'm sitting here, I'm working on my widget, I'm working on my thing. And it's really important 
and I need everybody to know, you know, what I'm working on. I need everybody to, to buy my thing and to, to do whatever. So that's kind of a mindset for, for a sender that's really important to internalize. But you also mentioned something in the beginning of that, which was um, that a lot of the conversation about us happens without us especially you're doing a big enterprise sales and you have your pitch, you have your proposal. And then, you know, they're deliberating for months and maybe years, who knows, before you get there. One piece of the puzzle that's really important is to make sure that you're answering kind of like the the why question. And this is not like, you know, what's your assignments and what's your why? All of that's really valuable stuff. It is the, why did you buy that? Well, why did you vote for that guy? Why did you donate to them? And, you know, I, I don't agree with his politics, but, you know, who was the best communicator at that in the last, you know, generation of politics was was Donald Trump. I mean, if you look, no question. You know, he, yeah, he was a consummate marketer. He had a garish slogan that was on these ugly red hats that said "Make America Great Again." So, if you ask somebody why they voted for Donald Trump, they say, "Well, he wants to make him. He'll make America great again." You gave someone the answer because they don't have to go and they don't have to think too hard about actually what the answer so is. That's the friction piece. Yeah. If you can give somebody that line, it's it's the best gift you can give your recipient is to, is to give them the question, oh, why'd you buy that car? You know, why'd you vote for that guy? And you, and you have that line already, great. Then you're empowering them to be a good ambassador of you later on. The other example of that that I use, slightly less political, is my dentist. Uh, I remember years ago, I was at my dentist and he said, I had cavities, it was a whole mess. And he said, well, you only have to brush the teeth you want to keep. And I was like, well, fuck, that was really good. And I, I have that, I keep that one in the book too, which, and that gives me the answer. Why'd you brush your teeth? Because I, you know, I want to keep those teeth, right? Because I, like, that was, that was a very powerful little message. Ever since then, I brushed my teeth twice. I mean, I, I brushed my teeth. I floss my teeth. I floss my teeth twice a day. And so that was really important. Give your recipient the gift of answering that question for them. Right. So you have to take them the question and answer it all in the space of a brief, salient and relevant uh, piece of copy or design, whatever, that speaks directly to what they care about. Fair summary? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, if, if, you, if you can do that, and that's why it's hard. It's hard stuff. I mean, I wrote it in the first page of this book, which is say that why do some messages work and others don't? Well, the answer is simple. The messages that work are simple. But I wrote a 208-page book about why. And about, and about how, which seems like I didn't really take my own advice. But if you dig into it, it's hard work to get there, but it's worth it once you do. Well, I can't remember. I think it was Winston Churchill said, um, wrote someone a letter and said, I, I apologize for how long this letter is. I didn't have time to make it shorter. That's one of those quotes that it's attributed to everybody yeah. under the sun, right? Uh, yeah. The reality is editing is hard. Removing, trading off, uh, you know, cutting out stuff is difficult because of our attachment to it. And we have to remember, we're not writing content for us. We're not producing videos for us. We're producing them for our audience. In the same way Ben said that you have to pay the price for the delivery, you're also responsible for their understanding of your message. So let's finish on this. When your messaging isn't landing, what advice would you give in order to be able to triage it and improve it? I'll give you a tool that is a very fun kind of thought experiment, which is interrogate your ands. So we can put together a lot of different ideas with the word and, and they will sound like a proper, correct 
English sentence and it doesn't raise any red flags in our head. But if you replace that with a so or maybe a however, because or whatever other causative word that you want to put there, all of a sudden, sometimes the thing that you put together of an and doesn't make any sense. So what you want to do is to connect those two things in that causative relationship that you know this so that and if it doesn't make any sense there it's going to raise that red flag in your brain it's going to say hey you know what this is a stop for a second i, I don't think i'm actually saying one thing here i think i'm saying two things or three things together that's one really important cheat the other one that i'll give you that is going to be a good thing to keep in your back pocket is remove the word help from your copywriting as much as you can. Lawyers aren't going to like this. The, you know, your regulatory department's not going to like this. But people don't want things that help them. They want things that do. And I, I don't want to have toothpaste that helps make my teeth whiter to go back to the dentist idea. I want teeth, toothpaste that makes my teeth whiter. If it can get rid of that kind of wishy-washy component, you're going to end up with a much punchier message. Okay. Interesting. How can people get hold of you, Ben? You can pick up Simply Put. Wherever books are sold, it comes out October 10th here in the States from Barry Kohler. You can get, you can reach me at bengutman.com, B-E-N-G-U-T-T-M-A-N-N. I joke that my name is not minimal. It has two N's at the end. So I have a little bit of... Uh, and two T's? Uh, two T's and two N's, right? Yeah. So I joke that, you know, maybe I'll add a third N so that maybe one day if you drop <laughs> off the last N, we'll still have two. Yeah, but you can go get me at bengutman.com. Uh, I have a free newsletter I send out every Tuesday, which has more... Uh, resources and information. And you can also find me on LinkedIn at Ben Gutman. Excellent. So Ben, one final question then. You've got a golden ticket and you can whisper in the ear of the idiot Ben age 23. What would you tell him that you know that he'd have probably have ignored but would have benefited from? Oh man. Well, the self-serving answer is to say like, go buy Bitcoin or something like that, right? Uh, but I think that the one piece of advice that I give to the 23-year-olds in my life, which are the, the graduates that I, that I teach, it's a quote that I'm going to butcher, which is, a ship is safe in port, but that's not why we build ships. And we're meant to take risks and to do things and to try things and reach out to people and connect and do all these different things. And it's not always going to be comfortable, but it ends up being worth it all the time. Absolutely. And you, you've got to go out and fail. Mm -hmm. Failure is not a personality defect. It's part of learning. And the people who don't fail probably are not taking enough risk. And not taking enough risk in the economy that we're going into is probably the kiss of death. Playing it safe as the market is changing around you is a recipe for disaster. So you're going to have to adapt and you're going to have to put the hard work in. And you're probably also going to have to cooperate. So if you're not very friendly and you don't play nicely with others, I'd suggest you start. Ben, any books that you would recommend apart from Simply Put, obviously? Oh, man. So I have a whole bunch of business books that are great that I recommend that I'm sure a lot of your other guests have talked about. I mean, Influenced by Robert Cialdini, I think is maybe the, the yeah. best starting for a lot of ones. But I would encourage anybody who's interested in being a good communicator in being a good marketer to reach outside of business and read read books of poetry, read history books, read novels, read biographies, read anything that kind of gets you out of the bubble of just thinking about dollars and cents constantly. Because marketing is about connecting culture to business a lot of times. And so the better you can get out of your shell and connect to that culture, the better you're ultimately gonna be as a creative. 
Great advice. Read fiction. Expand your minds. Excellent. Ben Gutman, thank you. Thanks so much, Marcus. It's been a lot of fun. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast once again. If you found this useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Click the bell on my profile. Click the bell on Ben's profile. Subscribe to our newsletters. And if you are looking for a coach who can help you to unlock the biggest problems that you've got, the challenges that you've got with sales, with ghosted customers, with deals that have gone south, with a difficult boss, give me a call. I'm running a beta test on a new product where I'm trying to establish if it's possible to get to the root cause of your problem and the question that will unlock it in 15 minutes. So I'm auditioning applications at the moment. And if you'd like to uh, be considered, then please drop me an email, marcus at laughs In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.